This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's so nice of you to say that back to me. Uh, my name's David. I'm on staff here uh, at Highway. It's good to see you all this morning. And this is, a, this is a milestone for us. We did it. We made it all the way through the book of Galatians, six chapters in 13 weeks, uh, and now it's time to turn over a new leaf and start a new series. Today we're starting uh, something for the next five weeks called A Heart After God's Heart, specifically looking at the life of David, who's got a great name, by the way, uh, in both uh, the books of First and Second Samuel, as well as the Psalms. And this is a really unique opportunity for us to look at not just the historical events surrounding his life that we see in First and Second Samuel, but to get an insight, a deeper uh, look at his motivations, his internal dialogue, his thoughts, his feelings, his hopes, fears, dreams, sadness that we see in the Psalms. So we get to do both of these things uh, together with one of the most pivotal characters in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 13, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. But as we'll see in the next coming weeks, it doesn't take too much careful observation to see that he is actually a deeply flawed man, one who struggles repeatedly with his role as a husband, as a father, and specifically with the temptation to use the power given him as king for his own gain even seeing to the utter destruction and devastation of the lives of some of those closest to him. And yet he remains a man after God's own heart. So there must be something more than merely acting rightly that's influencing this title that he's been given. See, if he were defined only by his repeated disastrous failures, David's story would only be a cautionary tale of what not to do. But that's not the case. See, there's something about him, something beneath the surface, something outside of his hit or miss morality that God sees and that he deeply values. And so when we say a heart after God's heart, we don't mean getting the feels all the time. And while there can and there should be an emotional response to God, what we mean and see in David's life is a consistent posture an internal positioning towards God. One that even in the depths of despair, even in the midst of being confronted with some of his most horrific actions, David repeatedly draws towards and not away from God. And for us, we find hope and encouragement in his story because David embodies the tension of transformation of knowing who God created us to be and yet being keenly aware that we are not yet those people. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. So for the next five weeks, we'll look at how a heart after God's heart is broken, how a heart after God's heart is merciful, is passionate, is brave. Today, we're going to start with a heart after God's heart being undivided. And as we get started, I want to take a look at two passages of Scripture that give us some insight as to the importance of an undivided heart, what having an undivided heart really means. We'll move through these passages in pretty rapid succession, so feel free to just follow along on the screen. 
Listen specifically for what having an undivided heart causes. To go back to Galatians language, what the fruit of an undivided heart might be. Let's take a look at Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Now let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. See, there's this connection in these passages between an undivided heart and fear of the Lord and an undivided heart and careful obedience to the Lord. And I think that might be the starting place for understanding what having an undivided heart actually means. See, there's something about an undivided heart that motivates our actions. There's a couple pastors that I love to listen to, and I subscribe to their church's podcast. One is a guy named Matt Chandler, who's at a church called the Village Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I was driving in the car a couple weeks ago and listening to one of his messages. He made this connection that I'd love to share with you this morning. And while I've adapted some of the language, just in the spirit of full disclosure, this is not my idea. So if you like it, it's not my idea. But if you don't like it, you can send him the email, matt at thevillagechurch.net. See, there's something that's happened within the church ever since the Enlightenment movement. Uh, We've treated... uh, Issues of behavior, what we would call sin and brokenness, as an intellectual problem. The solution being simply more information. The thought being that if we could just know more about God, if we could just memorize a few more verses, if we could just reflect on a specific truth, then our actions would change. Problem is, many of us try that and it doesn't work. Just because we know something is the right thing to do is no guarantee that we'll actually do it. There's a deeper motivation than information. And that motivation is love. See, we're more than just brains on a stick in need of more data. We're a people created to love and to love deeply. And this love or these loves that we have are what motivates our actions. See, we are not a people who do what we intellectually understand to be the right thing to do. We're a people who do what we love. And to have an undivided heart that leads to fear of the Lord and to careful obedience It's not to have complete cognitive understanding of who God is, but rather singular, primary affection for God. It's not having God be the only thing that we love, but the thing that we love the most. And it's through that love that our actions are shaped. Transitioning to our passage for the day, We're starting off our series on David actually by not talking about him all that much. See, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a contrasting character to David. We're going to set up a little bit of a foil. 
someone who, in a similar position and through really arguably less egregious actions than David, had their kingship rejected by God. Someone who was unable to reconcile the competing loves in his life and be brought to a place of undivided love for God. I'm talking about Saul, the first king of Israel, David's predecessor to the throne. To set up a little bit of background information, the nation of Israel really wanted to have a physical king on an actual throne. So God speaking to them through the prophets and the judges thing wasn't really doing it for them anymore. And so they petitioned Samuel, one of God's prophets at the time, for a king so they could be like all the other nations around them. And in this really interesting passage, God and Samuel talk about it. And even though both of them are less than enthused, God allows for it. And when we find Saul first mentioned in 1 Samuel 8, it's not on some glamorous military mission, but rather one to find his father's lost donkeys. So he and his servant wind up asking Samuel for help to find them, and instead, at the end of their visit, Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel. And it's pretty clear from the get-go that this is not something that Saul was seeking out. On his way home, he stops at his uncle's home, and when his uncle finds out that he's spoken with Samuel, he immediately wants to know what was said. And all Saul does is mention the fact that the donkeys would be safe. He says nothing about the fact that he's just been anointed king. (laughs) Then when Samuel gathers the nation of Israel together to announce that they will have a king, he turns to introduce Saul, but he's nowhere to be found. After some scrambling, they find him hiding in the luggage area. See, this is not a megalomaniac. It's an insecure man. According to scripture, he's a very tall and very handsome, yet at the same time, very insecure man. And then crisis happens. The Ammonites, a neighboring tribe, lay siege to the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Word of this siege gets to Saul, who scripture says, was filled with the Spirit of God, and that he burned with anger. He gathered the Israelites together, and together they marched and freed the city. And suddenly he's a hero. He's a conqueror. He's no longer the man hiding amongst the suitcases. But something happens in this transition. It begins to go to his head. See, rather than increasing his love for God, it begins to increase his love for himself. Before we give Saul a hard time, let's take a moment to reflect on just how easy this is to have happen. How easy it is to mistake God's blessing, his goodness, and his grace for our own capacity, for our intelligence and our insight especially if it's in an area where we might feel insecure or doubt ourselves. You see, in an attempt to compensate for our own feelings of inadequacy, it's so easy to begin to credit ourselves just a little bit for that success, to seek to pull identity and worth from them. And when we do that, here's what happens. We begin to ever so slightly edge God out of the center of our affection and begin to replace him with ourselves. 
And this is what begins to happen with Saul. And right away, we begin to see it have an impact on his actions. He begins to operate outside of the guidelines that God has given him as king. In 1 Samuel 13, he offers the pre-battle sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive to do so. And while this may seem trivial, it carries great significance because in one action, Saul violates the entire system of rule set up by God. You see, even though there was a king in place, the nation was still to be led by God. So there was this dual leadership model. The king would lead the people and God would lead the nation by speaking through his prophet. By offering the sacrifice instead of Samuel, Saul was essentially consolidating power for himself, moving himself again closer and closer to the center and edging God further and further away. And then we arrive in chapter 15. Saul's on a mission of divine justice against the Amalekites. He's to conquer them. He is to take no prisoners. And he is to destroy everything that belonged to them. Let's pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But, whoops, Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. Read again, these were the things they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. See, it's at this point in the story that this really fascinating couple of verses happen. See, God wakes Samuel up in the night and lets him know that all is not well. So at the break of dawn, Samuel gets up to go speak with Saul and find out just what exactly it is that happened. Let's look at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went out to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and turned and gone down to Gilgal. So now not only does Samuel know that Saul hasn't followed God's instructions, but when he goes to find him, he finds out that Saul has gone to build a statue of self-congratulations and is on a victory tour celebration. Now, I don't know what Samuel's face looked like at the time, but I can imagine it being very much what I like to call parent face. <laughs> that look that happens when enough evidence has been gathered and it is time for decisive intervention. If you want to know what that looks like, just ask my mom. <laughs> and what follows reads very much like a parent-child, or more like a parent-adolescent-child confrontation. Let's look starting at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. By the way, if anybody ever says that to you, it's a time to listen. <laughs> tell me, Saul replied. 
Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of which was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. There's a lot happening here in this passage, but I want us to spend a couple of minutes talking about why these two things, sparing the king and keeping the choice livestock, caused such a problem. Because while it might initially look like an act of mercy, sparing the life of a ruling official of a conquered nation had an entirely different meaning in this time. It was not a sign of respect from one king to another. But rather, it served as an opportunity to extend the humiliation and grief of the captured royal. See, it wasn't into a cushy exile tent that the king went to but rather into the personal slavery of the victor. Agag was now Saul's personal slave to be paraded around in shame, all to the glory of Saul. And even though Saul makes the case that the captured livestock were to be used as a sacrifice to God, I don't think anyone, even really Saul for that matter, believes it's true. See, the common practice of the day was for the victorious king to reward his troops with the spoils of war. And whether out of his own idea or pressure from his troops, and we actually see evidence for both in this passage. That's what Saul does. Here's the problem. What was supposed to be a mission of justice, an instance where the nation of Israel conquered a horrific enemy and chose not to benefit from it personally, This act would have set them apart from the nations around them, gathering their attention and moving them towards an awareness of the one true God. And instead, Saul acts just like every other king. He asserts his power over Agag in a move to glorify himself. He allows his troops to keep the spoils of war to ingratiate himself to them. And even if we were to make the case that these actions were misunderstood, it's hard to misunderstand building a monument to your own honor. See, for Saul to follow the Lord in obedience means loving God more than himself or what others think of him. Because remember, our actions are dictated by our affections. But he's unable to do so. His heart is divided between his love for God and his love for himself in a way that leads him to respond defensively when confronted with his actions, 
and ultimately try to minimize or to reframe, really to redefine what obedience meant. Let's look back at verse 19. This is Samuel speaking. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul's response. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. So you remember Samuel has just framed this question by saying, let me tell you what God told me last night. There's no arguing with that. When the prophet of God comes to you and says, I have a direct word from God, there's no arguing with that in this system of leadership. But yet, Saul does. He's unwilling to accept responsibility for what he's done. And in the rest of verse 20 and into verse 21, he tries to redefine what it was that God actually originally asked of him. Let's take a look. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So this is a binary moment. It's black and white. And what Saul's trying to do is he's trying to make it gray. What he's advocating for is that his 90% obedience is good enough to be counted as 100% obedience. He takes it on himself to selectively choose which instructions to follow. But what his selective obedience is doing is exposing what he truly loves. I was reading some commentaries this week and ran across this quote from a scholar named Bill Arnold. It says, this selective obedience is really only partial obedience. And partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. See, Saul's caught. He's wrong. Yet when confronted with the irrefutable evidence, he tries to reframe the situation, to redefine terms, to make excuses, and to avoid responsibility. And I want to stop here and remind us of what we talked about at the beginning of the message. See, if you were to line up Saul's actions offering the sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel, sparing Agag to be his royal slave, keeping some of the best livestock as spoils of war, they pale in comparison to some of the stuff that David pulls. Here's the tragedy of Saul's story. Instead of taking responsibility for his actions, owning his sin and brokenness, his love for himself that led him to directly disobey what God had commanded him. He remains unwilling to do so, even though he's been made fully aware of the situation by Samuel. See, when he's confronted with his divided love, he chooses to remain divided instead of moving toward wholeness and towards healing. And it's this condition of the heart exposed in his unwillingness to repent that disqualifies him from leadership. And this is the uncomfortable moment where I think we enter into the story this morning. So like Saul, we all compete with, or we all struggle with competing loves, whether it's work or school or a relationship or our reputation or simply the things that we have. 
We're all tempted to love things that are not God in the same way, if not more than we love God himself. And if our actions reveal our affections, it shouldn't take us too long to see how our sin shows us what we really love. This is where I'm thankful for the story of David, for the series that we're entering into this week. Because remember, having a heart after God's heart doesn't mean that we act perfectly all the time. Far from it. Because remember, we're all in the tension of transition. Rather, having a heart after God's heart means having a posture, an internal position that moves us towards God, even in the midst of our worst moments. Through faith in Jesus and the presence of God's Spirit with us, we can begin the restorative healing work of being brought back to wholeness. But that's an experience that requires us to opt in. And I want to close this morning by talking about two things. Awareness and invitation. For us to opt into undivided love for God, to move away from having a divided heart, we have to be aware of the divisions that exist within us. We have to be aware of our competing loves. But for us to have that awareness requires our willingness to be made aware. We have to be willing to know. This can happen in two ways. It can happen through the words and actions of those around us or through this quiet whisper of the Spirit of God within us. See, Samuel made Saul aware that his actions displayed his true love. And it's worth asking ourselves this morning if we have anyone like Samuel in our own lives. We might think that we don't. We might think that we have our competing loves managed and that no one notices. But my guess is that we aren't as good as hiding the things that we truly love as we think that we are. And this is the at times painful yet beautiful aspect of community. I'm willing to bet that those close to us know. Are we listening to them? Do they have a voice into the uncomfortable places in our lives. As for the spirit, the speed of life and the way that we jam-pack our schedules here leaves little time for introspection. And even if there was time, many of us, myself included, would rather be out doing things to be with friends, to be with family. But that speed, that constant onness comes with a cost. See, it's hard to be aware of the state of our internal world, to hear that still, small voice of the Spirit within us when we don't make time to stop and listen. And I think for some of us, it's an honest mistake, a byproduct, a side effect of Silicon Valley life. But I think for many of us, myself included, It's a way to avoid a conversation we don't want to have. Last fall, our staff went on an overnight prayer retreat at the Presentation Center down in Los Gatos. 
J.D. Ward, who's a spiritual director and friend of Highway, led the experience for us. And once we'd all arrived, he had us gather to do some exercises to help us really fully settle into the space, not just be there physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And after a series of reflections and questions, he left us to ask ourselves this one question. What is it about this time away, this time of stillness, this time of silence that raises resistance in you? I thought about it. And then I wrote down on the post-it note that he'd given us. I'm afraid to slow down because I don't think I'm going to like what I find. Can I tell you, that weekend was incredibly healing for me. But it required my willingness to be made aware of the healing that needed to take place. And at JD's guidance, it required my invitation of the Spirit of God into the areas of my heart where division existed, where I had competing loves, where I was seeking my good first and to begin the process of restoration, of being brought into wholeness. See, the response to awareness is ultimately Saul's undoing. He was defensive. He minimized his actions. He tried to reframe the situation in a way that made him right. I think we must pause this morning and ask ourselves, where in our lives do we do the same thing? Where do we respond defensively? Or maybe a more pointed way to ask the question is, who do we respond defensively to? Where do we feel justified in placing conditions or modifications on the things that God has asked of us? Some examples might be, love my neighbor as myself as long as I like them. Serve one another as long as my needs are being met. Trust God as long as things are going the way that I think that they should. What might these things reveal about what it is that we truly love, about the ways that we live with divided hearts? See, stepping into and bearing the full weight of our wrongness is terrifying. It's something we try to avoid. It's something that we do not regularly do. It's exposing. And the tendency is to want to try and hide because no one wants to feel exposed. But if I can say one thing this morning, it's that the irony is that we are not hiding anything. We may think that we are. We may choose to remain unaware. But God already knows. And he loves us still the same. And if I could say one thing and have you take it with you this morning, it would be this. That the degree to which the divisions in our hearts, the multiple loves that drive our actions, are mended, are brought back into the right path that God has for us. All of that depends on our willingness to be made aware of and to own our brokenness and to invite the Spirit to heal the division within us.
See, as our world grows increasingly fractured, as the lines that we draw between each other grow more and more pronounced, and as the word Christian continues to get attached to things that I'm sure grieve the very heart of God, our ability to live a life motivated by an ultimate love for God matters so much. See, this is about so much more than God simply being happy with the things that we do. Saul was to act in a way that was so contrary to the world around him that entire nations were to take notice and maybe, just maybe, see that there was a different way to live. To maybe, just maybe, move closer to an awareness of who God is. So I'll miss the opportunity to be part of the redeeming and restoring that God was doing in the world. See, this is a time where we need to be brave, where we need to take a deep breath to push past the uncomfortable spaces of our lives and ask God to give us the strength to love him in a way that causes us to live in extraordinary contrast to the world around us so that we might not miss the opportunity that Saul did. Next, we're going to close our service with a song by Audrey Assad called I Shall Not Want. I love this song. And in the song, she names all sorts of tensions that we face, all the directions that our heart can be pulled, all the things that it's easy to love to a place where they begin to drive our actions. But in the chorus, she says, when I taste your goodness, I shall not want. See, the answer to the division in our hearts, the answer to the competing loves that we have is not work or sacrifice but simply to ask God to help us love him more, to experience the fullness of God and see how everything else pales in comparison. As Nick sings, I'd like to invite us to do two things. I'd like to invite us to ask the Spirit to make us aware of the divisions in our hearts, the things that we love so much that they cause us to act in a way that's contrary to the way that God has called us to live. And second, to simply invite the Spirit to begin the process of restoring us to wholeness. Will you listen to these words? Will you pray? Will you reflect? Will you be brave? When the song's done, I'll come back and close out our time.